peace on earth, improved human dignity, and a better understanding of our place in the universe. The Interplanetary Podcast, the exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts here in England, Matthew Russell and Chris Carney. Oh yeah, Tory Bruno. I'm getting the hang of that bit, you know. I'm starting to like, you know, just I'm still bumbling the name a little bit. Um, but I think my doo doo doos are really getting better. I think your doo doo doos are on point. It's quite hard though, isn't it? Because I'm hearing you a, a fraction late, and you're hearing me a fraction late. So the timing's very different. It is, it is. But somehow I think, in the wonder of the edit that you do, it's going to be all okay. It will be all okay. <laughs> um, that was um, uh, the quote. Was a was a gr- brilliant tweet by Tory Bruno. Possibly my favourite of all the rocket men, the rocket builders yeah. out there. Yeah. He just seem he just seems to be so nice and so cool, Tory Bruno. I'm going I'm gonna say that. He's he's cool as yeah. uh, someone asked him, what is the purpose of being successful in space? And that was his answer. Which, although it seems slightly over the top, I, I like No, I think it's it's as succinct and beautiful as as a as a tweet should be if it's a, if it's done well but yeah just the, there's there's no more to say in that that's literally why we do it i mean when i first looked at it i thought that javelin rocket technologies were actually being sarcastic but they're actually genuinely want to know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a bit weird wasn't yeah. it but uh, th- this 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 episode's odd because we're recording on the 18th of september yep. and um and also it's going out on the 18th of september because we're 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 rushing. Yes. We're not Russian. Yes. We're rushing. We're not Russian. No, we're not um, we're not pesky Ruskies. No. Can we still say that? Is that no. We didn't establish whether we could or not last No, week. and I didn't I haven't done the most basic research to find out either. So eighteenth of September nineteen eighty. Yes. I've yeah. Arnaldo Tomeo Mendez. Fantastic. Went to space in a Soyuz 38. What country do you think he was from? I think he may be from Cuba. 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 Indeed, the first the first Cuban in space. I wonder if he had a cigar. I was thinking that exact same thing. He smoked the first Cuban in space as well. No, he couldn't do that, could he? The, the first person with a Havana in his mouth, in his gob. <laughs> We're not stereotyping <laughs> here at all. You know, no, we're no. just saying that he was salsering into the into the rocket. And he drove in some really posh 1950s car. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful, them. Also on the 18th of September is another first. Mm-hmm. So an Iranian who flew to space. Do you know who that is? Also on a Soyuz. Anusha Ansari. Of course, he's related to the family and the Ansari X Prize. So Yes. Yeah, I really like Anush Ansari. Good to follow on Twitter. Mm, yes. 18th of September also is the very first photograph of Earth and the Moon together by Voyager 1. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, um, a way of uh, solidifying our, 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 our feeling of insignificance, seeing something like that, isn't it? That's the, that's the beauty of it. It's kind of like the pale blue dot sort of thing, but it's so remote. Wow. You know, that's us. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that is us. Well, it goes back to the Tory Bruno quote, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it helps us better understand our place in the universe. Yes, yes. Excellent, excellent. And put. sort of puts us, puts us into perspective, doesn't mm, it? Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah. 
But the one that I really wanted to do was a Space Legend of the Week. Space Legend, Space Legend, Space Legend, Space Legend, Space Legend. Week, week. Born on the 18th of September again. Mm -hmm. Or if you were to use the old style Russian calendar, he's actually born on the 5th of of September. Like Freddie Mercury. That's confusing. But uh, no, he's born on the 18th of September. Mm -hmm. Victor Ambatsumian. Now, I've never heard of this chap, but clearly I should have heard of Mm. him. He's clearly an absolute legend. Victor Ambatsumian, born in Tiflis. Now, Tiflis is is the uh, Georgian capital. And do you know what the, the capital of Georgia is now nowadays called? Um, Georgia City? Georgia City. <laughs> Georgia City. <laughs> it's a good guess. <laughs> no, you often hear it pronounced as Tbilisi. Tbilisi, yeah. Uh, when you hear it on the television, but... It, I've, I've been finding it quite hard to actually get a, a definitive um, uh, way of saying it. Like Tbilisi yeah. is seems to be more what what it should be, see, but Tbilisi seems to be what BBC reporters us us say monolingualists. It's very difficult for us to to to, to, to say words that where you've put two consonants together in such a haphazard yeah. fashion. So yeah, <laughs> I think I think in the old Georgian it used to have a an apostrophe in there as oh, well. Oh God, it's getting confusing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that how how Tbilisi got its name, but it's the capital of Georgia, yeah. and this is where Vic Victor was born. But actually, he became a hero of Armenia rather than Georgia. Mm. But I'll explain I'll explain why. But he he um, yes, very clever, very clever kid obsessed with maths and studied at Leningrad University, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, But, of course, this was at the time, if you look at his, he was born in 1908, so by the time he was in his 20s, this is during the the Stalin purges. Oh, a terrible time for a lot Uh, of people. (laughs) Yes, not not a good time, and certainly not a good time for a lot of his kind of astronomy buddies. Mm. But for some reason, Victor was a very, very shrewd, political player yeah and this is something that allowed him to become really successful as an astronomer possibly the most powerful scientist of his time and a member of the supreme soviet so he you know he was not only a a great scientist but also a a very shrewd politician so how did they how how did he get through the pages i mean because that was a sort of thing of like intellectuals you are going to die Basically, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah. So what did he do? Did he just dumb down? Did he just sort of like pretend he was dead? I think he must. No, I think he probably played on his on his kind of Georgian roots of not being particularly posh. Mm. So I think I, th- I think that's it. But there was certainly resentment from other people who sort of had done five years of hard labour and then came back to do a bit of astronomy again. And they're sort of looking at him going, did you do five hard <laughs> five years of hard labour then? It's like, nah, I got round. Yeah, he just, I so just, just put a I, few I, think, uh, I just put a few holes in my coat and just bought normal bread instead of sourdough. And they were just like, oh, you leave him. He's fine. Yeah, he's he's another one of these characters, I suppose, like Von Braun, where there's a sort of there's an element of did they do it because they were they were bad people or did they do it just to survive? Mm. It's very very difficult, isn't yeah. it? But yeah, I, I wish I knew more about that sort of era of history, but I don't. Mm. Um, but what he's really famous for, other than his, you know, other than being very important politically, 
is things like in, in 1947, he discovered these things called stellar associations. Now, th th this was really cool reading about this because I know about loose sort of star clusters, open clusters and globular clusters. When you first do things like astrophotography, they're, they're, the, they're the things that you first turn your telescope to. Yeah. So you get open clusters, these Messier objects, and they're, they're beautiful collections of stars. And then you get globular clusters, which are these amazing kind of mini, mini galaxies that look incredible. Uh, but the stellar associations are sort of even looser versions of open clusters, and they contain about 10 to 100 stars. But you can prove that they have this shared common origin because they're, they're, they've, even though they're no longer gravitationally bound, they're, they're moving together through space, so they're going all in the same direction. Yeah. And because of their, their common movement, their common age, and sometimes they're very, very similar chemical composition uh you, you can say that they're that they're associated with one another and this is what uh, victor said he said associations have to be dynamically unstable configurations and must expand subsequently dissolving to form field stars Ooh. and with that kind of logic it follows that uh, star formation is actually still happening out there in the in the in the galaxy, but even better than that, he he sort of uh, proposed that it must be happening explosively as well. That these stars are being born in groups with massive explosions. Incredible! Which... Are we talking about like just all at the same time here, like, or are they explosion, explosion, explosion? Well, and all of a sudden, we've got a group. And I mean, how long? What's the time scale on this? Because I know when we get into stellar, into life cycles of stars, we're oh, talking I mean, billions I mean, of years. The, the but... Yeah, I mean, the time scales are, are, are millions of years, probably. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's when you look in things like the pillars of creation or you look at the, you know, the the, the Orion Nebula. Yeah. You can kind of see the these the stellar nurseries where this is actually happening. But, uh, yeah, there, there was a guy, there's a guy called uh, Chandrasekhar who, of course, the Chandra Space Telescope is named after. Yeah. And he was a big fan of Ambartsumians. And basically, he said, it is far-reaching implications for subsequent theories relating to star formation. That was good. I thought that was a bit like um, Peter Postlethwaite in... Oh. <laughs> In the usual suspects, what do you think? Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's spot on. Oh, Pete. Ah, oh, love Pete Postlethwaite. Pete Postlethwaite. Yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P. Indeed. So, so essentially, Chandra Seeker has pointed out that the yes, the discovery of stellar associations was a very, very important moment in astronomy. But not just that. Not only did he do stellar associations and and worked out that these. These groups of stars were being born explosively. But he also, then in 1957, over the next 10 years, he found that clusters of galaxies were also in these unstable um, movements with one another. And so he then said, you know, uh, enormous explosions take place in galactic nuclei, and as a result, a huge amount of mass is expelled in addition if this is so, these galactic nuclei must contain bodies of huge mass and unknown nature. Wow. Now, so he is hinting right there 
about active galactic nuclei, quasars, black holes, that kind of stuff. So he's saying that there's these huge... Un, huge bodies in at the center of galaxies that are unknown in nature which of course they were at the time yeah. this is not it is only 1957 yeah and um yeah I, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit in in a second but not only did he do all that but he was also because of his sort of place in the soviet system was really really influential when it came to putting things like telescopes on um soviet spacecraft so, so he's really put on so much groundwork in there for 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 what we know now. The build a lot of yeah. the building blocks of what of what we know now about space and about galaxies and yeah, yep. it's it, what, uh, he's basically an astrophysics giant, perhaps the yeah. most important of the Soviet astrophysics giants. But what's really interesting is that his entire life really is set in that Soviet era. So his life almost kind of is exactly his life's work is in that Soviet era of Russia, the USSR. Yeah. Um, But one really interesting thing is that he acquired a Schmidt telescope, uh, which is a type of telescope design. uh, And it's a a massive telescope, 52-inch mirror, which was apparently made by, by Carl Zeiss during... Nazi uh, occupied Germany, you know, uh, in the 30s, but was acquired during the war by the Russians as spoils of war. And uh, Victor managed to get this this beautiful Carl Zeiss um, telescope to Armenia and set up a observatory in Armenia that basically put Armenia on the world class astrophysics map. That it became, you know, one of the places to really go and study astrophysics what a stroke of luck luck and you know he 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 just built this amazing observatory he he died an armenian hero like as in in armenia he is a national hero apparently a quiet charismatic man now i got a lot of this stuff um this history because donald lyndon bell wrote an obituary for him uh, for the um for one of the big societies and i i discovered the little pdf now donald lyndon bell is a who died quite recently but he was the star of a film called star men and if you've not seen it you should go and see star men because it's a beautiful film just got me homework my, there got me homework thanks very yeah, much it's 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 about it's about these astronomers that that were in america just at the time you know really important astronomers and and their sort of journey and how they would walk through the desert near these like observatories and stuff. It's really good because Donald Lyndon Bell's such a lovely man. And the, the best thing ever is like, I got to have an evening meal with him and his wife as well, who's also an absolute bang out scientist, um, had an evening meal with him um, because the, uh, the, sh- the film was premiered in Bristol and my mate invited me to the premiere and we we all went for a meal with him you've got some <laughs> it incredible was pals yeah <laughs> and as but but it was lyndon bell who sort of looked at active galactic nuclei and said i don't think the explosion bit is quite right and so he was the one that started formulating ideas about black holes and accretion disks back in the 70s based on on the work of victor mm. how cool how cool is that? That's so, so cool. Yeah, absolutely. What a dude. 
Yeah, a quiet, charismatic man who had lots of time for people, but his colleagues would find it very hard to get in touch with him. But he'd right. always be doing some lecture to school children somewhere. Yeah, amazing. Apparently. <laughs> what a cool dude. <laughs> but let's face it. Let's face it. The big news story. Well, oh. well, actually, I should quickly mention that the interview today is obviously Eric Berger, the unsurpassed genius that is the rocket legend Eric Berger, who's, you know, always has been one what the favourite the favourite rocket space journalist on the Interplanetary Podcast. Mm, he's right. He's right up there. No, he, he's he's literally my favourite. I, I, Eric is such a laugh, and he uh, he doesn't he doesn't um, he doesn't mess around. As you'll see in the interview, it's quite candid. Right. Okay. Straight <laughs> so to the point. Really good. I don't like it's, people yeah, who beat good. around the bush. This is this is great. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely doesn't beat around the bush. I, I wish I'd been a little bit more on my A game, but uh, I'd just got off another interview with next week's guest, and so my mind was blown, as you'll see next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, you kind of like back-to-back interviews, like um, Hugh Grant yeah, in Notting Hill. The, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you, exactly horse and hound. Thank like. you very much, bro. <laughs> so we, we, what we cannot avoid... No. Like a, like like an enormous great attractor. Mm-hmm. The story of the week has to be. I'm life. your Venus. I've got life. I'm your fire. Do, 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 do. Yep, yep, yep. Amazing life, story. Incredible. Life in the clouds of Venus. Now, this story I saw kind of breaking on Twitter, and it was very odd. There, there's lots to be said about the embargo system yeah. that happens. They didn't seem to quite work with this, and it all seemed a little bit chaotic. Um, and people wrote articles about it. But I won't go into that because the science of this is really, really interesting. Um, life in the clouds of Venus. So actually, this goes way back to a paper, which I actually dug out, called Life in the Clouds of Venus by Harold Morowitz and the great Carl Sagan. I've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> and which is exactly 53 years ago. So that was published on the 16th of September. So it really was exactly 53 years 53 years ago that that was published, right? So before yeah. anyone went to the moon, Carl Sagan was talking about life in the cloud of Venus. So the abstract starts like this. I mean, this is the exciting thing. It starts like this. While the surface conditions of Venus make the hypothesis of life there implausible, the clouds of Venus are a different story altogether. And ends, and <laughs> so I did it again. <laughs> I, went, went through. I love it when you do that. <laughs> yeah, and ends with the phrase... It is by no means difficult to imagine an indigenous biology in the clouds of Venus. What follows is one such speculation. So, and then obviously they go on to talk about um, how, you know, the, the, the clouds of Venus actually are suitable for life. Yeah. I mean, could, they, could I, I don't think I could ever love Sagan anymore. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's Sagan is. Sagan was born in the same year as my dad, that which I always and not yeah. oh, and Yuri Gagarin as well. Oh, Yuri, Yuri Gagarin, my dad, and Carl Sagan Amazing. and Gene Cernan. 
which yeah. I think is quite... That's a cool year, isn't it? It's a, that's um, a good old year to be born, that good, one. It's, it's a good old year to be born. Um, so, yes, uh, 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 via a couple of more papers, so there was a guy called Grinspoon in 1997 and Cockle in 1999. But a couple of years ago, there was, there was a paper called Venus's Spectral Signi- Signatures... And the potential for life in the clouds by ah. Sanjay S. Limay et al. And 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 so th- this idea is still going on. So it's like an abstract that starts the lower cloud layer. Uh, what what Sanjay S. Limay? I don't think I'm going to. I don't no, think I'm going to attempt. Don't, their don't attempt that one. No. No, the abstract that starts, the lower clouds layer of Venus is an exceptional target for exploration due to the favorable, favorable conditions for microbial life. Mm. You know, so it, it, it's still, a, a ve- you know, still considered a really uh, likely, not likely, but still an interesting place to go and look. Um, so well, the, the question really should would should be why haven't we been more excited about this before mm, yeah it's, it's always been there it's just it's just it's surfacing now or going into the uh, the public uh, public realm a lot more but, and i think that's maybe because people don't take the time to read these things but you would have thought that that the press would have jumped on those and said you know there's life in the clouds but yeah. but the the story is always Mars, which which is essentially a pretty hostile place with virtually no atmosphere and really irradiated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But I know Venus is obviously an absolute hot hell hellhole. Yeah. It's it's no but, uh, it's it's no Barbados. <laughs> <laughs> it's no Barbados. It's no <laughs> it's no Devon coastline. No. It's none of these things. It's no Lake District. No, no, certainly not. <laughs> it's that's, the, no yes, holiday. It's not, that's no holiday. That's no holiday. It's no Lake Garda. It's <laughs> it's not it's not Northern Norway. No. It's none of these places. <laughs> it's none of these places. <laughs> um, but but we we have actually spoke about this before about you know why are we obsessed with going to Mars when actually we we could. Go to Venus. So this most recent paper is by Jane S. Greaves et al. Phosphine gas in the cloud decks of Venus. Now, I got—I have to say—I got very excited when this started breaking because yeah, yeah, I, I I made a few Facebook tweets. I didn't do anything on the Interplanetary Podcast um, Twitter because I thought you know I've got to remain professional. But uh, on my own personal account, I'd got super excited. You've gone bonkers um, on that one. I'd gone bonkers, got super excited. Um, but, you know, obviously this is more direct evidence of phosphine gas and not direct evidence of life. Right. <laughs> but saying that, <laughs> there was a paper right at the beginning of the year in January 2020. Remember that time when life was simple and, and wasn't completely crazy when we thought 2020 would be normal? Remember that yeah, time? I remember that. Yeah, I was like, yeah, uh, it, was, what was, it was 54 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. January 2020, a paper came out by Clara Sousa Silva et al. called Phosphine as a Biosignature Gas in Exoplanet Atmospheres. Mm. And, it, and, and it very explicitly says, on Earth, pH 3 is associated with anaerobic ecosystems, and as such, 
it is a potential biosignature gas in anoxic exoplanets. In other words, planets with no oxygen in the atmosphere. Phosphine is a promising biosignature gas as it is no known abiotic false positives on terrestrial planets from any source that could generate the high fluxes required for detection. Now, so that's, you know, it's very explicit that so far they found no mechanism that would create phosphine on a terrestrial planet. Because we make it here. Is that, the, is that, right? Is that right? Well, we, yes, we, we do make it here. It, it was used as a poisonous gas, of course, and mm. it's the byproduct of the silicon industry, I believe. But it gets made in the guts of things like penguins. Mm. Um, and so penguin poo contains quite a bit of phosphine. Right. Um, uh, so, but... So, you know, someone's already, it, this isn't come out of nowhere. Someone's already suggested that phosphine is a really good place to look for, um, by, you know, uh, for, for a biosignature. Mm. Um, but what's incredible, imagine you were going to go on a safari and you okay. were... Okay, well, well, hang, so hang on, Okay, I'm going on a safari. Just wait. You what, go, do I get one of those hats? The, uh, the ones you get, that, you get, like bucket you hat? Get one of those, you get one of those hard hats, yeah. Can I have a blunderbuss? Blunderbuss. No, that's very politically incorrect, going out shooting, shooting oh, safari stuff. Sorry, I thought I thought I was doing it in the past. Okay, carry on. No, you're doing it in you're doing it in the press. Imagine you're going out on safari and you've bought yourself a nice camera. Okay. And you think, right, I'm I've got this beautiful camera. I'm gonna try it out in my in my back garden and just make sure it's working and you know, get used to the controls and stuff. And you go out in your back garden, take a few snaps, and on the camera roll, there is a wild elephant or a big cat or something like that already. <laughs> That's a bit like this, I, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Where they've they've gone. Well, let's let's try this technique out on Venus, and uh, so let's see what we can do. And so they pointed. Uh, the uh, Jane Greaves pointed these very um, large telescopes, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope, the JCMT in Hawaii, and then again the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, ALMA Observatory in Chile. One of my favourites. They, they, yeah, they, but they pointed both of those at uh, Venus and detected the spectral signature of phosphine in, in the atmosphere. I think, it's, I think the, the spectrum's given by the sort of lower, warmer cloud shining through the atmosphere. I think the sort of back backlit through the, the the sort of warmer atmosphere below. Hmm. I think that's how it works. I'm not because I was trying to work out is is it sunlight being um, going through the atmosphere or or something else? So I think it was backlit by the lower atmosphere. Right, which is and incredible. The atmosphere is made up of a lot of what methane and stuff like that. Like all I know is that there's a lot of sulfuric acid going on. Yes, I mean, and, and this is obviously, obviously, the thing that people worry about. So yes, okay. what did what did Professor Greaves Greaves say? Jane Greaves, she said, uh, yeah, "This was Jane an experiment Greaves. made out of this was an experiment made out of pure curiosity, really, taking advantage of JCMT's powerful technology and thinking about future instruments. I thought we'd just be able to run rule out extreme scenarios like the cloud being stuffed full of organisms. When we got the first hints of phosphine and Venus spectrum, I was in shock." <laughs> 
<laughs> that was beautiful. I think you said powerful technology in a very good Welsh accent. That, that Thanks was, very that much. Was but, like, I think fine. my usual, my go-to for Welsh is usually uh, is Tom Jones. But obviously I don't want to do that with, uh, with Professor Greaves. <laughs> <laughs> no true <laughs> so uh, yeah this <laughs> the um what what's great this the clara Sousa silver she she really does seem to be the absolute boss person when it comes to um biosignatures and mm. so she, uh, she wrote a paper with a very quick response to all this and and pointing out that um you know this is this is a really good and surprising result yeah, and the, the 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 phrase that I thought was really really good as she talked about Venus being Earth like in the past, just like Mars, it had it may have had oceans and and uh, and but then just had a climate change with runaway greenhouse um, effect, which maybe that's what we're doing to Earth right now. It's a bit scary, but as Venus became less hospitable life would have had to have adapted and they could now be in this narrow envelope of the atmosphere where they can still survive. This could show that even a planet at the edge of the habitable zone could have an atmosphere with a local aerial habitable envelope. Oh, straight from Australia. Fantastic. <laughs> probably. Probably. <laughs> I didn't actually look where... Ca- Clara Sousa Silva is from, but bit of a uh, she, Italian. She, I, I know she works. I know she works at MIT. So she, oh, there you go. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I get. I guess the story really for me is this: is that you've got scientists who've worked for a long time to work out what biosignatures would be good in exoplanets, as a, a sort of way of of saying, yeah, that that exoplanet might actually harbor life. And phosphine has come out as a really good one because no one has really found any way that uh, of processing it without life or without an industrial process. You know, it just doesn't look as though phosphine can be made by your normal processes. It's certainly not on. It certainly doesn't happen on Earth. So the exciting thing is that, that there's two possibilities: that we don't understand rocky planets not even Venus, even though it's our next-door neighbour and it's a you know, sister planet. You certainly don't understand its atmosphere. And so just that on its own is exciting enough to say, we, we, we've really got to go to the clouds of Venus and sort this out. Yeah. But the other possibility, of course, is that there's life in the clouds of Venus, which is just even more amazing, which also means we should go and check it out. And, of course, the, the, um, the, the, the important thing here is that just discovering even the tiniest possibility of life on another planet opens up everything really it just it 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 just changes everything i mean i think you said on 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 the on the internet like that this is the discovery of our lifetime oh yeah i mean yeah if 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 you were to go further and and not just say there's phosphine in the atmosphere of venus but another paper came out that says there is life in the in the atmosphere of venus it would yeah it would definitely be the biggest news story of our lifetime surely yeah uh, well science news story of our lifetime I and mean, it's just it would but what would be really tantalizing there's again there's kind of two possibilities is it life that is nothing like life on earth and that would that would make you think life could be really abundant out in the universe because there's there's lots of ways life can occur 
Uh, mm. uh, that life means that life is actually broader than we ever imagined. But even more amazing, if 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 on Mars you found similar life to Earth, but on Venus really different life, and then you've got this the double whammy of saying, oh, this type of life is really abundant, it's everywhere, but also other types of life might be abundant everywhere. And it would just change, it would change, definitely change, going back to Tori Bruno's quote, our understanding of our place in the universe. It's just incredible. Yeah, it's it's amazing, absolutely amazing. But my question is, though, you know, we 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 you know we're beating ourselves up about not going to visit them. They haven't come to us, Matt. So you know what I mean. We're we're, we're neighbours too, and you know what I mean. With my neighbours, if they don't get in touch with me, I can get in touch with them anytime. So you know, ball, balls in their court, balls in phosphine's court. How do you know that? Because on Venus, they they may have had a civilization and thought we're doomed, we're doomed, and we don't really have rockets to be able to get over to earth so what we could do is fire bacteria and viruses over to earth and hope that they will seed in the in the oceans this beautiful blue planet that we can see and hope that they will seed and eventually become life and much like our own so you never know, panspermia may have happened from Venus and we all might be Venusian. Oh my goodness. So women really are from Venus. So women really are from Venus, as are viruses, bacteria, elephants <laughs> and daffodils. <laughs> amazing, amazing. It, it does mean, I would think, that uh, Venus will be put very much back on the map now as a kind of destination. I mean, how exciting is it we, that we could go, we could pop over to Venus? And that there's a few in, there's a few missions in the pipeline. So there's a flagship mission concept, and a flagship is like your really, really big NASA missions like Galileo, um, Hubble, those kind of you know, very expensive missions that run into the billions, James yeah. Webb Telescope, those kind of things. Uh, a flagship mission that would go to Venus. And this is uh, a concept led by a team by Martha Gilmore, who's professor of geology and earth sciences at Wesleyan University. And this would sort of fl- maybe launch in 2029, and it would, it would have an orbiter, a couple of little... Um, smaller orbiting satellites, two short-lived landing probes, but m- the best bit, of course, is a balloon. So what are a you balloon do with would that? S- well, it would so the balloon would 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 fly in this perfect bit in the atmosphere. There's a bit in the atmosphere of Venus that's very similar to being on the surface of Earth. So the atmospheric pressure is roughly the same, the temperature is roughly the same. It's only really the sulfuric acid that that makes it a little bit <laughs> not so nice. Don't, don't go but, on your bare feet. Yeah, yeah. But you could, you know, you could actually, you know, sit inside a space capsule in, in a balloon in the atmosphere with, without a spacesuit on, as long as you're, you know, as long as you're able to to breathe, you know, uh, oxygen, what? you'd be fine. Wow. So wow, wow, yeah, wow. a balloon is a really good idea. I mean, I don't know how technologic, you know, how technologically feasible it is to get a balloon out into the atmosphere, but it's certainly something that they're working on. 
Mm. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, th- this it would cost about two billion. This thing, so that's a bargain. That is, I have to say, if it finds life, it clearly is an absolute bargain. Um, but there's already uh, a couple of um, missions in the lower down uh, discovery style program, which are cheaper NASA missions. When I say cheaper, obviously they're they're tens of millions of, <laughs> of yeah, dollars like to Aldi, do Al- Aldi missions. But there was one called Da Vinci and another one called um, Veritas, and both those missions are discovery style missions that lost out to uh, Psyche and oh, I can't remember the name of the other one, uh, the one that's going to look at the Trojan a- asteroids and Psyche, which is going to look at the asteroid Psyche. It lost out to that. These two lost out to those two, but they, they get another chance of selection in twenty twenty one. Which I think is pretty good timing. So mm. uh, Da Vinci, Fingers crossed for them, yes, like, yeah. I would imagine that Da Vinci and Veritas have been moved very much up the up the ladder of of missions that might get chosen. So Da Vinci stands for Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Ga- Gases Chemistry and Imaging Plus. Do you know so what? That's, that's a really. It's just really sort of quite um, amazing that it turned out to be Da Vinci. You know, yeah, <laughs> that they put all those letters together, and, and it wow. went, "Oh my like, god, hang on a minute!" Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it just so happens to, to to be an acronym and not just an initialization. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, that would be the first probe since 1986, and that probe in '86 is the one that you know they just they, it just went and like sort of just it melted, didn't it? And, and that was yeah, that. well. Yeah, but the, the Russians have been, you know, uh, in fact, Rogozin, I think this week, was saying that Venus was the Russian planet. You know, it's like, hands off, Venus is Russian, because mm. they, they're they the ones that have done most of the science there, which is, which is you know, to some extent true, that they landed the Venera probes on the surface. But then there's been the Magellan probe and Venus Express, and at the moment, the Japanese Akatsuki which is late, got really late to Venus because it, as it as it tried to go into Venus's orbit, it went wrong, and so it missed its insertion into Venus's orbit and had to fly around for ages while they figured out a way of being able to get it back to Venus and get it into orbit, which took five years. <laughs> So it arrived oh, into. I know it's so, so, but but it's an incredible story. The, the Akatsuki story of getting it back into orbit is is really really cool because it's very uh, yeah, orbital mechanics. Japanese of, rocket yeah. scientists. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know they, they've got it in there. So Akatsuki is is at the moment the one that's out there doing the Venus, the Venus thing. There's cool. a European. There's a European mission called Envision that uh, might get. Um, an M-class mission, so that's how um, the Europeans define their missions in these different classes. Uh, mm. And that should fly in on an Ariane 6 in 2032, if uh, if Ariane 6 is still going by then. It's incredible, uh, but- like that, that schedule. The schedule is it's a busy schedule, isn't it? If it's like, yeah, we can't, there's nothing, there's not a mate until... Uh- 22 2032 unfortunately but you know you can you can book him for that if you want like, I, I, I i know it's it's it is weird it is weird that there's there's when you look at the schedule of 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 interplanetary probes and and what's out there 
you suddenly realize that you can get these massive gaps as well. We had this this thing that if certain probes go to Mars a little bit late, then some of the orbiting satellites will be orbiting spacecraft will be getting a bit long in the tooth and therefore you might not be able to communicate. So you need to start thinking about putting another orbiter around Mars and stuff like that. So they're all interdependent as well. And of course, often there's lots of international collaboration and then there's launch windows to think about. Oh, yeah, it's, it's complicated. <clears throat> so and, and so much to think about. And funding as well. I would rather spend the money on something like this big flagship mission to Venus than on a large collider. I don't, you know, but maybe I'm just more into space than I am into particle physics. I just don't know. I think you are. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think you're slightly biased on this, but maybe I agree. I'm slightly biased. But, let, but I think the general public would want to know that there was life... It, I think I think finding life in the clouds of Venus would be more spectacular than finding a new particle in the standard model. What do you think? Yeah, we've we've seen them all. We've uh, we've seen all that like large hadron blah blah yeah, blah. Change the record. Change the record, particle <laughs> physicists. We found life. <laughs> yeah, we found life. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, actually, don't because it might be really rare. <laughs> Um, uh, right, I, I think I think it's time uh, to. Um, well, actually, I'm just going to quickly sum up. I think that that's an amazing news story. The phosphine in the phosphine in Venus's atmosphere isn't a sign that there's life in atmosphere in in on, in the atmosphere of Venus, but it it is a very very interesting and special find nonetheless. Absolutely, totally agree. Um, right. Um, do you want to listen to my interview with the incomparable Eric Berger? Of course I do. Come on. Hey, cute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So we're back with Eric Berger. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Thrilled to be back, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's good to see your face as well. I haven't seen it since the good old visiting the European spaceport. It's been a couple of years, hasn't it? Yeah, now? that that Two is a, yeah. Well, this year I'm almost going to write 2020 off as a as a year, so I think it's a year because <laughs> it's <laughs> it's just gone ridiculous. So you've survived you've survived the hurricane. That's the yes, yes. Uh, Hurricane Laura was a truly powerful storm for a time. It looked like there was a pretty good chance it was going to come up toward Houston. Um, I live about three or four miles from Johnson Space Center, and so it, it would have done. Had it made landfall in the right spot instead of 120 miles up the coast, it would have caused serious devastation um, to the Houston community. Houston is actually the largest U.S. city. It's the fourth largest city in the country, but the largest city that's that's vulnerable, really vulnerable to hurricanes, so on the Gulf Coast and on kind of the East Coast. So it's, it was it was a really a, a close call. And, and as I say, if it hit Houston, it would have had a serious impact on Johnson Space Center. Well, to expect anything other than misery in 2020, I think, is a mistake <laughs> at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings that's that brings us nicely onto the onto my very first question, which which is your predictions of what happens in the because um, we we've got a big American election coming up, and what happens both ways if Trump gets in or Trump doesn't get in? How does that affect? 
all these things like NASA, Artemis, Jim Bridenstein, all these sort of things, it's becoming really interesting. Right. So I'm glad to see we're staying on the topic of misery um, <laughs> with the coming election. So first of all, let me just preface by saying that, that none of this is set in stone, but just from talking to a number of people, sort of this is my sense of what is likely to happen. So um, it, at this point, it appears unlikely that Trump will win re-election. I think the best sort of estimates are about a one in four, one in five chance. So still, you know, a reasonable chance, but not, not particularly high. Um, what I have heard is that if he is reelected, Jim Bridenstein, who by most estimates and certainly by mine has done a really credible job as the NASA administrator, he's not been divisive. Like a lot of Trump's appointees to other agencies or positions. He's not been political at all. He's not tried to undermine or sabotage the agency or change its, its, its sort of essence. He really has come in and tried to fortify the agency give it a bold goal of landing on the moon by 2024, tried to take programs like the Space Launch System rocket and kind of kick it in the butt to get it moving, but also recognized the value of commercial space and really pushed to, instead of, he always says this, and he's, it's exactly what he's doing. He doesn't want NASA to be the only customer. He wants NASA to be one of many customers. So he recognizes the potential of commercial space to offer more frequent, lower cost access to space to get more things and people into space. And so he's really, I think, done a nice job of balancing all of that in a very difficult environment. Um, what I, my understanding is that if Trump is reelected, most likely he would be gone, not by his choice, but because there is some political pressure to replace him. A, a guy named Jeff DeWitt, I don't know if you, you've heard of him or know mm. of him, he was the chief financial officer for a couple of years for NASA under the Trump administration. He's a politician for, from Arizona. And then about a year ago now, or now maybe eight or nine months ago, it was back at the beginning of this year, he left NASA um, to go back to Arizona. And then a couple of months ago, he came back and now has a fairly senior role in the Trump campaign. What my sources tell me is that he and Bridenstine do not see eye to eye um, and that he is that, that he would probably help affect a replacement of Bridenstine. And it's hard for me to, to, to see the Trump administration finding someone better than Jim for the job. Um, and my sense would be that, that, that they would find someone much worse, sort of seeking to politicize the agency. I mean, you hear a lot of rhetoric, not from Bridenstine generally, but from the president and from other people at the Republican National Convention about how, you know, we saved NASA and, you know, we're going to send humans to Mars you know, very soon, which, which as you know, and, and your listeners, most of them know is, is nonsense. There is no NASA plan or architecture to get humans to Mars anytime soon. They're going to struggle mightily to get humans to the moon by the late 2020s. Um, I think they could get there, but they have some challenges ahead of them. So, so that, that's, they, they probably would bring in someone long on rhetoric and short on substance. And Bridenstine has had enough substance that he's actually got some things done. So that, that, that would be my concern about Trump being reelected with regard to space. Um, if Biden is elected, you know, my sense is that, you know, the Artemis program really makes a lot of sense in terms of it gives NASA something to do in the near term. And by that, I mean, over the next decade, it's achievable. Um, it allows for a cross section of, of industry to participate 
There's an on-ramp for international partners, and it meets some geopolitical aims of like, you know, just sort of establishing a presence on the moon before China gets there. So I, I don't see a big shift away from Artemis if, if Biden is elected. I could see some changes, like the 2024 date goes away because that's seen as a political date. And it probably is a political date, but it also is a date that, that does give the programs emergency. But they could back off and just say mid-2020s or late-2020s or, or not even put a date on it. Um, they may come in and look at the sort of the high costs and the delays of the Space Launch System rocket and make some changes there, although I'm not sure there'd be the political will to do that. Um, and, and, and under that under that scenario, almost certainly Bridenstine would be gone as well. They'd want to bring in their own administrator to sort of shake things up. But I don't think we'd see, there was some concern maybe a year ago that, that you know, that someone may come in and just turn NASA into an earth science agency and really pivot away from doing anything in deep space with humans. At this point, I, I find that that highly unlikely. So that's my sense of where, how the election would shake things up. So it's, it's uh, neither scenario is particularly good news for Jim Bridenstine fans then, is it really? I, again, sort of caveating this with, with nothing is set in stone. It's, I would not see him being the administrator of NASA a year from now. And, and, and yeah, that is bad news because I, I, like I, I, I think he's been a great administrator for NASA. I, I look and see what he's done given sort of the hand that he got dealt and the environment that we're in and think that here's someone who has come in, has, has, has made sure that people at the agency know that you know he values them. He values men and women and 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 scientists and and all kinds of things, and and basically trying to be inclusive, and and has also pushed the agency forward. I mean, we are now at a point where they have awarded initial contracts for lunar landers, and they have a plan to to sort of get back to the moon by the, in the mid twenty twenties. I mean, this is all feasible stuff. You know, the previous administration, the Obama administration, did some very nice things with commercial space, but they had this pie in the eye concept of the journey to Mars. You know. And they were going to get there in, 10, you know, twenty thirty three was maybe a date that that was thrown around. It was all, it was all, it was all nonsense. There was there was not really any substance there, and so this plan actually has some substance. And and I and I and it's unfortunate that he he is probably not going to be there to see it through. Yeah, I mean, I did. <laughs> I know this is quite hard to almost countenance, but did, did the Trump administrations, you know? putting this 24 Artemis date on things, did that actually help things? Because I, I kind of get the sense that it it, it, it allowed Jim Bridenstine to kind of push things forward a little bit. It's a double-edged sword. So I think people, if you're, if you're a strong Democrat, you look at that and say it was a purely political date because that would be a landing at the end of the second Trump administration, if there were one, right? And that's, that's true. I do think it was a, a political date in that sense. That date is symbolic of, you know, that would be like the capstone achievement of, of his administration. <laughs> um, uh, but at the same time, it also does serve notice that, hey, you know, NASA has been stuck in, for, for, for a decade or more now building capabilities to get humans into deep space and do something, right? This was actually a clear-cut goal that said, no, we're really going to go, and we're going to do it in five years. And yeah, it's going to be really hard, but we ought to be working toward this date because it's, it's doable. It's very hard, but NASA is supposed to be do, you know, capable of doing hard things. 
So, you know, let's get moving, you know? And so he was pretty aggressive to try and, you know, trying to minimize delays on some of the programs and, and has been, you know, pushing forward as hard as he can, I think. Was some of that pressure coming from, because because we, we can't really go much, much further without talking about uh, Elon Musk and what he's doing with, in Boca Chica and, and Starship and things like that. And, and everything that he's done really in the, <laughs> in the last decade has been just like, it, it has been incredible. Does that play into the Artemis thing as well? Is commercial space pushing it forward because it, it's like now we've actually got a partner, a commercial partner and people that are able to sort of give not just NASA a run for its money, but actually assist NASA in, in what would normally have been an, in, you know, a, a national undertaking. I think that's, I think that's a great point. And, and so what happened for most of the 2010, so most of this decade is you, you kind of had NASA and then there was this nebulous promise of commercial space kind of hanging out there. And Elon was talking about how, well, we're going to build this big Falcon heavy rocket. And, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to beat Boeing by putting astronauts into space. And then we're going to, you know, leapfrog that and go to Mars. And, you know, for the first six or seven years of the decade, so like until 2017, even when Trump was elected, you know, you could make the case that, that no, NASA was the gold standard. You know, they're the only ones with their traditional contracts, the Lockheed Martins, the Boeings, the Northrop's, you know, those come, those are the companies that have always carried the water for NASA. And at the end of the day, those are the only ones you can really trust, right? The, the perception of commercial space was full of hot air. Okay. And, and, and that was, although I thought it was BS at the time, um, and, and, and certain people certainly believed in commercial space. A lot of the old guard view was, was definitely along those lines. Well, then things started to happen, right? So they start landing in, in 2016, they landed a Falcon nine first stage on a boat, right? And I think it was in April of 2016, huge technical achievement. But even then you could kind of look at that and say, well, okay, they got a rocket back, but it'll never really be economical for them to fly them. Right. But then you get to 2018 and they launched the Falcon heavy rocket for the first time. Right. This had been, uh, this had been almost a myth in parts of the aerospace community that they never really thought they were going to happen. And then they launched it. And then they launched it again. And the first three launches were all perfect. Right. They, they, they hit their mission objectives. And all of a sudden, SpaceX, with their own money, has built the, the biggest rocket in the world. And it doesn't have as much capability as the SLS, but it has about 70% of the capability of the SLS. And oh, by the way, NASA could buy one for a couple hundred million bucks, which, you know, or for about a tenth of the money they spend every year on development of the SLS. But they don't stop there. They, 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 they come out with the Block 5 version of the Falcon 9 rocket, which is their final iteration. And they, 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 they've now flown this thing, one of these, six times. Okay. And so like all of a sudden they can build really big rockets. All of a sudden they can, they can, they can start delivering on the, the promise of reuse. They're not there yet, but they're certainly making huge strides. Okay. Then, then, then it comes to human launches, right? So you go, you, if you go back to 2014, that was the year that NASA decided that as two commercial crew partners were going to be Boeing and SpaceX. Okay, so they, they get those contracts, and and the con, the conventional wisdom is, well, Boeing got more money. NASA views them as the leader. SpaceX is the follower, sort of a backup bet on Boeing. Certainly, the the general wisdom would have been that Boeing has been in this business for decades. They're going to deliver, right? 
Um, it'll be expensive, but you know, let's, let's face it. If you want to get people safely into space, are you going to have Elon Musk do it? This flashy guy in California, or are you going to go to the company that's done it? So everyone kind of expected Boeing to win. And it's, it's really interesting. If you go back and you look at the things Boeing said in like 2016, 2017, you know, they're talking about these Starliner is going to be this capsule that is used not just for NASA, but for commercial purposes, because they were thinking, well, we're going to get there first and people are going to want to fly with us. All right. Now fast forward to 2019. SpaceX has their first demonstration test, 100% successful. Like it, the, the mission went almost flawlessly um, and things look great. And then they blew up the capsule on the ground a couple months later, which was obviously a big setback. But then you contrast that to Boeing's demonstration mission. And that thing, they almost lost the capsule twice. Mm. It, was, it, was, it was really a cluster. And I mean, they have put a gloss on it. That, that initially they put a gloss on it and said, well, it was a, a test flights are meant to shake out problems. No, no, no. You, you don't put a human spacecraft up there, lose communication with it, and then you know almost fail to catch some errant thrusters that are going to cause it to bounce into the service module before it's coming back from space. And, and it, some of this stuff hasn't come out, but I mean, there, there, were, lots of, there were lots of problems. And, and so that's why, you know, you've heard the talk of whether they're going to refly the Starliner test mission in November of this year. That was the original date. No, they're not. You know, that, 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 that second OFT is going to slip into 2021. And so when do you actually get your first crewed mission on Starliner? I mean, I, I, they would, I'm sure they would happily take mid-2021 at this point, but it's probably going to be later in the year, next year. Um, and so all of a sudden, SpaceX is going to have flown a demo mission, which, by the way, was flawless. I mean, you know, you talk to the astronauts who were on that capsule, and they were like, it flew perfectly. And the only hiccup was the, the hydrazine issue right at, you know, after they got the, the, the ship on the boat on, or the capsule on the boat and sort of they took some precautionary measures. But that seems like it would be a pretty straightforward fix. And now they're going to fly a crew mission, I think, um, in October. Um, they're going to fly a crew mission in, you know, the first or second quarter of next year. So you could get to the point where the, the, the dragon capsule has flown three to four times before humans ever go up on Starliner. Right. So all of a sudden the, the, the idea that SpaceX can't, can't reuse rockets, they can't build big rockets and they can't safely fly humans is all gone poof. Right. Um, and Oh, by the way, their capsule is not only ready for commercial flight, it costs 60% of what Boeing is going to charge. So you no longer hear about Boeing doing commercial flights. All of that discussion is now about SpaceX doing commercial flights. They're going to fly um, Tom Cruise to the space station to film a movie. They're a partner for Axiom. They're a partner with these other companies. Like, like all of that is shifted, and that's because SpaceX has been able to do what people didn't think they would do. And there's actually a really, really fascinating interview. And I know this is not directly related to your initial question, but Tori Bruno gave an interview to a Denver publication. Um, and he, he talked about, because Vulcan is United, Tony, sorry, Tori Bruno is the, the chief at United Launch Alliance. And, and they're building the Vulcan rocket to replace the Atlas V rocket. And it Originally, Starliner is going to launch on the Atlas V rocket because Boeing owns half of United Launch Alliance, and so it makes sense to put that. They're not going to fly on the Falcon 9, obviously, because of the Boeing relationship with SpaceX. And, and you know, it was assumed that at some point, because the, the, you know, 
ULA is talking about flying Atlas V until 2024, 2025, and then switching entirely over to Vulcan because it has U.S.-made engines, not, not Russian-made engines. Bruno in that interview said they could fly Atlas V until 2028 for Starliner. And so that means maybe they're not even going to go to the effort to human-rate Vulcan because Boeing is only going to need to fly Starliner for the original six commercial crew missions, and they don't have other commercial missions. Because if they had other commercial missions, ULA would, would be more inclined to, to human rate the Vulcan rocket to get that flying Starliner. So that's a very long way of saying, whereas five or six years ago, you know, commercial space was sort of still all hype, all promise or all sort of promises. Today, commercial space, and, and by commercial space, really in this sense, we mean SpaceX. Okay. Mm-hmm. SpaceX has delivered. Like they're the ones that are getting NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. They're the ones that NASA has said, okay, um, we really need uh, the gateway delivered to the lunar orbit. And so they're probably going to put that on the Falcon Heavy. They're counting on SpaceX to deliver cargo um, to the lunar gateway. And so we are in the midst, middle right now of seeing a transformation um, from the traditional providers to new space. And, and by, again, by that, at this point, we mean SpaceX, but other companies are presumably coming along as well. It's a really a paradigm shift. And so Bridenstine is, is what one thing Bridenstine has done, he has recognized that and he has embraced that to the extent that I think he politically can and, and sort of and recognizes that that's the future. And so we're kind of in the middle of a transition to that future, I think. So <laughs> who was uh, that's, that, that's brilliantly put? I mean, who's who have SpaceX pissed off the most? Is it Boeing or the Russians? by being good <laughs> they've pissed off everybody everybody um they don't have many allies uh, in in aerospace because they don't have many suppliers right they're not buying their engines from somewhere else they're not buying not buying their second stages from somewhere else they're they're they're, they're not buying much of anything anymore because they're reusing all that so you know everything except the second stage now you know they're building starship out of steel, right? They're not, they're not, you know, they're building their own engines for Starship. So they don't have like, like when you look at ULA, right? Who's their, who's the main competitor for SpaceX in this country? Who are their suppliers? They're buying their engines from Blue Origin. They're buying their um, solids from Aerojet. You know, they're buying their para- pay- payload fairings from Ruag. Um, and, and, and so, Everybody has a vested interest in the success of ULA, right? Nobody has a vested interest in the success of SpaceX, but SpaceX and and NASA, frankly, and actually the Department of Defense. So it has allies. It has some allies at NASA, although it has some detractors there. It has it has allies at the Air Force because the Air Force has seen what they're doing. But across the rest of the aerospace spectrum, you know, they share some common goals with Blue Origin, right? But they're not like allies um and then of course as you say like they 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 pissed off russia because they've just they're in the process of destroying their launch industry um i know for a fact that china you know is spying and trying to get the, the technology that spacex has actually that goes way back to the beginning in the falcon one days um with china uh 
they've they've angered the entire small launch industry with their rideshare program mm. because despite what you hear from those companies, you know their ability to launch multiple satellites on the low cost Falcon Nine really really puts a lot of pressure on everyone from from Rocket Lab to the bigger companies like Relativity and Firefly that they're building somewhat bigger rockets. Um, and then of course, you know, they, they've, they've, they're competing with Europe and China places like that, but those, those places have some institutional customers. So they're a little bit less, um, less vulnerable, but they have no allies. If you talk to, if you talk to Elon about this and I have, it's like, he's like, you know, we have to inspire the public because like, that's, that, those are our allies, right? We don't have uh, uh, other companies sort of lobbying for us because they share our interests or, or when we benefit, they benefit. It's like, we have to have like the public on our side. And so that's why you see them doing, you know, stuff like, you know, launching a Tesla to Mars and, and building their factory kind of out in the open. I mean, they could, they could block some of that stuff from public view, but you know, it, it's, 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 it's good for them to sort of get, get the excitement out there. And so, so yeah, you're right. They have angered everybody. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but but you absolutely what they haven't angered is rocket rocket fans. You know, like anyone that's a, a fan of of rocketry and engineering and everything, just loves SpaceX. I mean, let's let's face it that in terms of their public, the public opinion of SpaceX, it's extremely high. <laughs> you know, I you could walk around the street and everyone would have heard of Elon Musk and and probably remembers the the Falcon heavy launch and his Tesla going off to Mars, but there's no way that they'd know the name ULA or any of those things. If you're just yeah. sort of asking the, the, the public. So he's absolutely winning that battle. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's what well, I'm, I'm always trying to think of the things that could go wrong for SpaceX. Is there, is there a chance that SpaceX, because presumably a lot of these other rocket companies like, but I mean, Boeing at one point must have been this fleet of foot company that was absolutely amazing. And of course, they must be having the most horrible time now. Is there a point where SpaceX become the establishment and 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 fall into that same trap? Like it seems all companies eventually do. Right. So I think that's a great point. Um, and and I don't think you could argue anything other than that SpaceX is the establishment now, um, as, as radical as that sounds. But in the U.S. aerospace industry, they launched by far the most rockets um, you know, of any other company, uh, about you know, two to one over ULA. Um, you know, they, they now, their recent contract with the Air Force specifies that they get 40% of national security launches. Um, they, they're now doing, a, a, you look at the future contracts for NASA science missions, which used to all go to ULA, and those, about half of those are going to SpaceX. They're going to be the only company for a while launching humans to space. They do you know, a lot of the cargo for the International Space Station. Um, they're doing cargo delivery to the Gateway, as we talked about. They may be doing surface delivery, cargo delivery on the moon. They have a COTS you know, they can bid on COTS contracts with Starship. So they now have a, a key piece of a lot of NASA's newer programs, right? Just because they, they have shown that they can deliver, right? I mean, that's, that's, there's, you talked about the fans. I mean, I think people like SpaceX for two reasons. One, because I like companies that, and agencies that do stuff, you know, not 
talk about the stuff they're going to do, but end up maybe not, or maybe doing it or maybe not. SpaceX talks about it. Now, some things they don't do, like they never did Red Dragon because they decided to pivot to Starship. But generally, they're out there doing things like they're launching rockets, they're landing rockets, they're 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 building Starship. I mean, you can see it; it's a physical thing. Um, and 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 they they do stuff, and then they're audacious about it, like. They're not sitting around waiting for NASA to give them a $2 billion contract to develop reuse technology or, or sort of, you know, take the step from engineering specifications to actually sort of physically building it and testing it out on the stands. They just did it, right? They didn't wait around um, for, for, for a government, you know, handout or contract to, to get something done. If they, they, they see something that's important to the future of space in Elon's mind, They'll go do it. Case in point with Starship, orbital refueling, that's transferring fuel from one Starship to another. That's never been done on any kind of big scale in space. And, and they're like, we, this is this. And, and they're right, by the way, if you talk to any, any sort of space architecture person, they'll say, at some point, we've got to figure out how to store fuel in space and transfer it. And they're like, look, we, ju- we just got to go do it. This is important to us. Um, and and so and another key technology like was when they when they were going to figure out how to land their Falcon 9 rockets, right? They had to figure out some way to control the flight through the atmosphere, upper atmosphere. And so NASA had done theoretical work on supersonic retropropulsion. And that just means basically when you're going faster than the speed of sound, you've got to turn your engines on sort of into this onrushing flow, right? Which sounds crazy because you're going several times the speed of sound and you're going to fire your engines and, and how are you not going to blow up your rocket? So they, they figured, they sort of took the theoretical basis of supersonic retropropulsion and made it a reality. Because they said, we've got to have this technology. And so I think those are the two reasons. One, they get stuff done. And two, they're very audacious about it and just sort of don't wait for the government to tell them what to do. Um, I mean, it's, I'm, all, I'm really struggling to work out with Starship, for example. Why hasn't someone done this before? What, if, if you can literally just go out into the desert, bash a bit of stainless steel together and, and, and actually build this huge rocket, why haven't, why haven't these sort of bigger companies gone, what we should do is just build like this, <laughs> this enormous rocket? I do, it, it almost seems like Starship is just impossible. But presumably, yeah. but, they, but they must believe in it enough to go. No, this is this is genuinely possible. And where does Starship actually genuinely fit in with the with Elon Musk's plans for the next ten years? Oh, it is absolutely the core of what he wants to accomplish. I'll tell you a story. Um, in 2018, I, I think it was February, the first launch of the Falcon Heavy. It was the the morning of of that the launch, and they invited five of us media out there to sort of come up and, and set up half a mile away from the Falcon nine Falcon heavy rocket within the background. And so, um, and just sort of do an interview with Elon and sort of, you know, whatever. And, and so he, we see, we see the, the SUV come driving by and the media guys like, okay, there, you know, there goes Elon with his kids, some of his boys and they, they drive around up the pad and you can sort of see him in the distance getting out and walking underneath the rocket and looking up or whatever. Um, and then, and then he sort of comes back around and, and stops. And like, I'm, I'm the first person that sort of, he comes up to and, and Elon is, is 
he's, he's big, he's tall guys. He's six, three, six, four. I'm not sure if his exact type, but he's certainly much taller than I am kind of a big, kind of intimidating guy. And, and a couple of years ago, I didn't know him as well as I do now. And so he gets out, kind of walks, sort of walks up and says, Hey, you know, how you doing? And, and I'm like, Hey, and, and he looks, he sort of stops and, and looks off at the rock in the distance. Now this is the biggest, most powerful rocket in the world. Okay. And it's not small. It's big. He says, he, he says, it looks kind of small, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and in my own mind, I'm thinking, was that a self-deprecating joke? Or was he being serious? Because it's not small. You know, what's, it, it just, it just like, it's, it was a weird way to begin the interview. And, and then later, as I've sort of gotten to know him better, I realized that, no, he was being serious. Because in his mind, even back in 2018, he was already deep into the sort of planning of Starship. And that's where his mind was. And when you compare the Falcon Heavy to Starship and the Super Heavy rocket, as it's now known, it was, was still BFR then, I think. Um, it, there's, it's, it does look small. So he was looking at that and sort of, in, I think, in his mind's eye, he had Starship stack next to it and thinking, well, this is, that's kind of a small rocket. So anyway, so the point is like, even back in 2018, it was, his mind was on Starship and it's even more so that you may look at Starship and, and you're entirely right to say, well, it's insane that they're building rockets out of rolls of steel on a dusty plane under tents in South Texas, where there's no aerospace industry to speak of at Boca Chica. And they've just sort of created one out of thin air. And, and you may look at that and think that's nuts, and you're right, it is nuts. And and the aeros- a lot of the aerospace industry looks at Starship and says that's nuts. But in Elon's mind, this is the way it's got to be done, and it's got to be done this way for 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 two reasons. One, if you're really going to build, if you're really going to send millions of tons of of material to Mars, which he thinks is important for a settlement, you've got to have hundreds of Starships. And they can't be cheap. They can't be expensive because you can't build one every two years for $2 billion and launch it like a government rocket. You've got to build a lot of them for low, for low cost or you're never going to be able to carry out this vision. And so this is the only way in his mind that it can be done. Now, you were talking about earlier, well, why hasn't anyone ever done this before? And the reason for that is when you look at what, what we launched in this country in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I mean, in the 60s, it was humans, right, for the, for the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo program. And so you couldn't really fail. And then in the 70s and 80s, it was mostly military satellites. So again, you were really needing to have rockets that, that didn't fail, and especially with NASA the spotlight is so bright on them that you cannot ask NASA to build the SLS space launch system rocket and, and then do a green run test, right? Which they're going to do later this year. So, so SpaceX, when it does these, these hops or whatever is, is doing kind of a green run test, right? And they've blown up some of these rockets already and that's okay. Everyone's like, well, it's a, it's an iterative design. When you're doing this for NASA, you can't afford that kind of public failure because if you build a big rocket and put it on the test stand and it blows up, then the president or Congress or constituents are going to say, what the hell are they doing? 
you know, they don't know what they're doing. They spent six years build, building this thing and it blows up. So they have to go through this very methodical design process, spend years before you actually cut metal, sort of over-engineering and designing and looking at and sort of modeling it to sort of get it to where you think it's a final design and then you start building it. Um, and so it's, it's kind of different cultures. And a lot of that comes from Elon, who very famously years ago said, you know, we can't afford to fail at SpaceX and that's okay. And they're, <laughs> they're proving that with the Starship program, but it's completely different design philosophies. And when you're Elon Musk, you can afford to take risk. And when you're NASA, you're much more risk averse. Well, I mean, <laughs> if Starship actually starts flying and, you know, the opt- it has the, flown. It has well, flown. yeah. I mean, if it, but if 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 it's if it becomes this, if it becomes something that's absolutely as solid as say Falcon Nine, you know, this is this is a mm-hmm. working rocket, never goes wrong. Bish, bang! That we've got this unbelievable heavy launch vehicle that that rivals anything that's that the world has ever seen ever. Where the hell does that put everyone else? Because presumably this thing's cheap. It can just launch insane amounts of stuff into space it's completely reusable like everything else just sort of becomes obsolete overnight doesn't it <laughs> game over i mean it really is it is game over um it would it if it's successful it would completely change the game um i would argue that the falcon 9 rocket and falcon heavy have already utterly transformed aerospace because you're talking about a rocket that if you really needed to you could launch it for 30 million dollars and make profit and 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 the Falcon Nine is actually a super capable rocket um, for everything, but like you know, moon missions or things like that. So, but but if you had a Starship that worked as well as a Falcon Nine, which by the way is now the most reliable rocket in the world, it's if you want to ensure your payload launching, it costs less to do on a Falcon Nine than any other rocket, including the Atlas V. Um, it would it would utterly destroy the competition now the military would still want independent access to space so I, it's hard for me to see them going away from ula at least until blue origin comes along which is probably still several several years away before they can get a reliable rocket but no it, it changes the game entirely nasa nasa would move its its exploration efforts on the starship because it would have two modes it would have cargo and in and, and humans and and so you know, he's got to finish Starship. He's got to build the super heavy rocket. Um, but, you know, frankly, this is a guy who has built the Falcon 1, the Falcon 9, the Falcon Heavy, Cargo Dragon, Crew Dragon. Um, and so they're pretty good. This is ambitious, but they're, they're making progress and they're going as fast as they can. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Is, is there a, yeah, I mean, is there a point where, SLS becomes just so embarrassing in terms of a project next to it. If if Starship and 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 Super Heavy get built, I know I, I'm because I, I am always conscious that I'm starting to sound like a fanboy around SpaceX when people sort of <laughs> badmouth things like SLS because I know that SLS is important for 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 no, it's some. Not. It's not, <laughs> which is so. Yeah, I mean so. Yeah, well, explain that. Explain that statement because because I've I've certainly come round to that opinion, but I, I feel as though it's almost like a swear thing to say that you you say it and and you feel as though I'm I'm badly informed. I'm just too much of a Musk fanboy. Um, so I've I've certainly been accused of being a fanboy, and and I I'm I'm 
uh, what SpaceX done has been hugely impressive. So it's hard to talk about their achievements without sort of sounding like a like a fanboy. The problem with the SLS is that even 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 if it was a proven rocket that was ready to launch tomorrow, it's it's so there's just two fundamental problems. One, it, the cost is is prohibitive. You know, it's it's going to cost two billion dollars to fly that rocket. And if oh by the way, if you want to improve it from the seventy or eighty ton initial block to the block one B with the upper stage, you've got to spend half a billion dollars on a mobile launch platform and probably ten billion dollars to Boeing to develop this exploration upper stage. So you've got to invest ten billion dollars more in the rocket that you've already spent a decade and twenty billion dollars on to get to where it's almost going to make a test flight. And so you've got to assume that it works, which is no guarantee. And then you've got to be willing to in, continue to invest money to get the really powerful rocket, which is sort of in the 105-ton class. So one, and, and then even if you get there, it still costs, you can't reuse it, and it costs $2 billion to fly every time. So, so what are you doing, right? Um, and then the other thing is it's just it stunts the technology. Because if, if you want to get to a point, Matt, where there are lots of people going into space and they're working in space and they're doing interesting things at the moon and maybe planning to go to you know human missions to Mars or going to asteroids, you know, this is not the rocket for you. And not just because it's expensive or, or, or not reusable. It just you can put a capsule on there with four or six people and you can launch it once a year. Well, that's not sustainable. That that sort of creates the continuing sort of just this ultra professional class of astronauts where a handful of people going into deep space. You need something that's cheap and can fly often, and you need things like you know propellant depots where you store fuel, so that if you 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 know and you and you need you need tugs to be able to move around space. You need things that can go from low Earth orbit to lunar orbit, and then from lunar orbit down to the surface. And so you just need all this in space infrastructure that's hard that really hasn't been done, but we could certainly do, and. Because we're spending two to three billion dollars a year on SLS, we're not spending it money on in space development. And because there's a political imperative to protect SLS, then there then the politicians say NASA can't spend money. So it's it's not only the cost of building the rocket, it's the lost opportunity cost of all of these technologies that wouldn't enable an affordable in-space architecture. And so that's the real frustration that people like me who would like to see us have a vibrant future in space. That's why I get sort of, sort of, that's why I dislike the SLS, I guess is what I would say. Is, is the SLS like a sort of a scaredy cat's gambit almost? It's, it's almost like it, it's so unambitious because it's, you're just saying, well, let's like you were saying earlier on, let's just trust all these, all these contractors that we've trusted for years to build something that's solid and we know it will eventually work rather it's not than this. Yeah. It's not the scaredy cat. It's more like, this is how it's always been done before. I mean, when you go back and look at the, the, um, the, the Apollo rockets, you know, Saturn five, those were, those were extraordinarily expensive to design and develop as well. Um, and so it was sort of just taking and the space shuttle as well. It was costly. It took a long time and it did ultimately work pretty well. Um, but but the, the SLS was was just sort of the next step. It kept the contractors that built the space shuttle 
involved in the space program. It sort of moved their shuttle contracts into SLS contracts and sort of, so you kept your workforce engaged, which is what Congress wanted. And let's face it, in 2010 or 2011, SpaceX had only launched the Falcon 9 rocket a couple of times. Um, and they had blown up most of their Falcon 1 rockets. And so they were not the trustworthy company. Now, there were some plans that were set aside, not chosen, where ULA could have built a larger rocket. And I think that probably would have been a better decision because ULA actually has competence in building rockets. Um, so, but, but that's not the way NASA or, or Congress decided to go. But, but it wasn't scaredy cat. It was just sort of to protect political interests or to, to sort of satisfy political interests. And, that's be, and because that's the way it had always been done. Yeah, it's it's it, yeah. It seems so odd. It's <laughs> it's a very American kind of way, isn't it? I it's I there. They are. That's right. There are no traditionalists in Great Britain, are there? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. No, you've got me there. I I just. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, so we well. Let's take a future, say four or five years time, where you have a reliable flying starship. How does that change space exploration? Because presumably it changes space exploration absolutely radically. So I think it's a big assumption to say there will be a, a repeatable flying starship in four to five years. Uh, I don't know what other technical hurdles they're going to they're going to uncover, but I think I think you know within a decade you probably have some kind of very low cost, very high power launch system. Maybe by a decade they'll sort of have figured out the. Cause, cause so, so the, the first step is to build Starship just to prove. So the hardest part in all of this in Elon's mind is building a reusable second stage because that's never been done before. So he's like, okay, we've got to solve that problem first. It's the hardest problem. And so, you know, you've got all the issues of you've got to bring propellant with you. Um, and so they have it in the, you know, the nose cone and it's sort of all. So, it, so, so first step is building Starship. Then you've got to have something to launch it with. So you've got to build this rocket with 30, 29 or 31 or 35 engines. I don't know. I think it's 35. 35 Raptor engines, a huge beast. And he just tweeted this week that they're hoping to hop a prototype of that by October. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but, <laughs> um, but, wow. but they'll get there because, you know, what they have done with these, these early Starship prototypes is sort of test out the, the critical plumbing um, and, and so they're going to have to go from one to 35 inches and that'll be hard, but they've already done that. They went from one Merlin on the Falcon one to 20, 27 on the Falcon heavy. So they, they can do it. Okay. It'll, it'll take some time. Um, then, and then, so then, so his first step is build starship. Second step, build super heavy. And then once you get that launch system worked out for cargo, then you take the step of sort of building a human starship. And that's much more complicated, you know, that's a bigger challenge. And I think initially they're going to start with like consumables before some kind of regenerative life support system. But anyway, he's still on step one, but, but they're coming along. But, but if you get there and you have like a cargo starship in five years, that, you know, that, that just further pressures all these other launch providers. But I don't think – I think the Falcon 9 is going to fly for a long time because they sort of have that down. Um, but, but if you get to – you know, being able to put 110 or 100 kilograms into low Earth orbit, you know, for, for whatever price, I mean, that, that is revolutionary. But there just aren't that many customers right now with big, with the need that much stuff in space. And so I think it's going to be more of a, you build it and then the customers will come because that will 
sort of offer a radic- radically new capability. Like, for example, you know, if you had this huge payload fairing and um, uh, t- t- uh, and the lift capacity, you you could radically de- redesign the way you build spacecraft to go to other worlds or telescopes or all these other things. But but I think it's still very much a it, they have to prove that they can do it before that happens. Yeah, that is that is interesting. It's so, so we can segue over to 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 Europe and our and our and our small <laughs> small rockets. An interesting question would be, why hasn't Elon? decided to build a small sat launcher presumably that's quite telling in his in the philosophy of whether they work or not so um the reason was is he did it with the falcon one and this was you know they, they finally flew that successfully in 2008 and there just weren't that many customers and by the time he had gotten the falcon one working he had already received nasa contracts for cargo to the International Space Station. And so the, the lion's share of the company's funding at that point was coming from NASA. NASA's priority was, was getting a replacement for the shuttle to take cargo to the space station. Elon also knew in his mind that they would come for crews at some point. And so his, his mind was like, okay, we need a bigger rocket. And so that's why they, you know, they shifted their focus to Falcon 9. They, they, they just dropped the Falcon 1 because they wanted to focus entirely on the Falcon 9. He saw that as the future of the company. Um, but he has come back for the small set market with the Falcon 9 rideshare. I mean, that, mm. that clearly is is using their existing technology to to get, you know, get to eat into that emerging market. Yeah. So you just you just don't need to you just don't need to have small rockets because you've got a big one essentially. Right. I mean, why why launch a Falcon one for eight or ten million when you can launch a Falcon nine for forty or fifty million and put ten satellites on it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's is that really is that bad news for a lot of the electrons and all the these other small sat? So here's launches. my read on the small sat launch industry. It is bad news, right? I think there's probably room for one small sat launch company. So like, I'm thinking like three to four hundred kilograms payload capacity. So Rocket Lab, basically. Like, I think it's going to be very hard for another purely commercial company. To come along and supplant them, just because they're so far ahead and they, they've they had this had the failure, but they have a pretty good success rate, and it seems like they're going in a good direction. I think in the United States there will be room for one company in the one ton capacity range, and so we're talking about Relativity, ABL Space Systems, Firefly. These are the companies that are trying to sort of build a rocket in that class, and I think maybe one of those will be supportable. In Europe, as you said, I think there will be an opportunity for one commercial smaller micro-launch company to succeed. And I don't know if that will be in Great Britain. There are actually a couple of really interesting companies in Germany that are also in that space. There's PLD space in Spain. Um, you know, I, I, I follow, because I've got this, this Rocket Report newsletter, I follow a lot of the sort of the, the promotion coming out of spaceports in Scotland and England and all these places. And I, and I think, wow, you know, if, if one of these places is viable in 10 years, that'll be a really big win for, for the UK. Um, so, I, I've, like I said, so, so Europe is very interesting, too, because they've got the Vega C rocket, right, which can do, what is it, three tons? 
It's something four like tons. Yeah. What's the payload capacity? So it's not yeah. small, but it's not yeah. it's not micro, but it's small. But it's like thirty or forty million dollars a launch, right? And so that is not cost competitive with anything other than the Pegasus rocket, which is a dinosaur and is not com- cost competitive with anything here in the United States. And so, you know, that has some institutional value, I think. But but I, I do think there's room for like a five hundred kilogram rocket. In Europe, and I think there is some will within the European Union to support that. So, like, I think whichever company gets there first and 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 starts to show some Rocket Lab like success, then that company will start to get some institutional launches from Europe. And so, I think there will be one company that that sort of wins that race. I don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be, and it's it's something I think that will be really fascinating for you to follow because I think it's a pretty. It'll be a pretty good race. Uh, it's going to be a bum fight for sure. <laughs> it's going to be a bum fight. It will be a bum fight. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, e- e- I guess even for the actual launch site itself, you know, if, if uh, yeah, horizontal mm. launch like Virgin Orbit, do they have a place, or is or is that almost like a technology that's that's been and gone? So they do have a place. I think they still have some real technical challenges to overcome at Virgin Orbit. But they do have a place, at least in the United States, because I know the U.S. military likes the idea of being able to have an airplane ready to go and, and rockets kind of that could be developed pretty quickly, like within a week or two. And like they could say, well, we've got to have this capability here. And so Virgin Orbit could ever get to the place where its rocket was reliable and really could launch almost on demand then the military would love that because it could have, I mean, it would have a capability in a, in a, in a, in a real dire emergency to get satellites into whatever orbit it wanted to very quickly. You didn't need a specific launch, you know, infrastructure. So they're betting very heavily. I think there, I, I, I don't see, and I, and I love the folks at Virgin Orbit, but I, I don't see a viable pathway for them subsisting solely on commercial contracts or NASA contracts because it's it's just they're too they're too big of a company. Um, the the rocket costs too much compared to other options on the market, and so the, their pathway probably goes through national defense. And if they can get their system to work, then I could see them sort of having some kind of a retainer or some kind of like ongoing guarantee of contracts from from the military to to keep them going. But but they've got a ways to go. Yeah, which which kind of their other sort of. Uh, endeavor the space tourism thing it's just not it's not happening is it that this space tourism every, every year we're sort of promised uh the first new shepherd or the first <laughs> virgin galactic but they're not happening where where do you do you, where do you see that going where do you see the the, the is is that going to be another big spacex win so there's the, the spacex is not competing in the space that virgin galactic is and, and the two companies should not be conflated in any way so SpaceX is doing orbital tourism, which is which is requires much 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 more energy and risk than suborbital tourism, which is what Virgin Galactic is talking about doing with its its VSS Unity and other spacecraft. So um, I'm not I don't want to say too much about Virgin Galactic because they're a publicly traded company and have stock and you know, but let me just say that that. It's, it's almost impossible for me to see them having some kind of viable commercial future 
Because if you just start to look at the numbers of their expenses and their in their financial reports, and then sort of block it out by okay, the fixed cost for a, a single flight is this because they have to replace part of the engine after every flight, um, and and all their overhead. How many flights a year would they have to do to break even? And the number is like very, very, very roughly on the order of a hundred. Okay, a hundred of these flights a year. Maybe it's less than that, but but probably not substantially. So I just look at that and I see, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if they could get there because they really would open up sort of this overview experience to the masses. Having spent 15 years to get to the point where maybe they can do a commercial flight next year does not give me great confidence that they're going to reach that point before they run out of money. This t- and, but at the same time, you look at their stock price, and the stock price is not betting on that. It's betting on suborbital point-to-point transport or now a hypersonic travel plane. And, and, and again, I just look at sort of the development history and all the money, and, and, I, and I haven't added it up, but it's billions of dollars that have gone into the company and, and sort of their technology over the last 15 years. And, and it's, it's very difficult for me to see them raising anywhere near the money needed to develop a suborbital point to point system, you know, where you would take off from New Mexico and land in London, you know, 90 minutes later. I mean, that, that is, that is a ma- an order of magnitude more challenging than this plane, which kind of goes up and comes right back down. Um, because you're talking about a sustained flight, not for, not for, you know, three, three to six minutes of weightlessness, but like for 90 minutes. And that's just, that's just a huge, you know, a huge challenge, techno, techno, technically. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying, again, it's a money issue. And I, and I just don't think that they have the resources to get that done. So, so I'm, I'll say I'm skeptical about the future of Virgin Galactic, but certainly I'm rooting for them. Uh, two two questions that we always ask our our guests oh that I don't oh think boy. that you've that that you've ever answered is, do you have a space hero that you would bring back and say, yeah, look what's happening now? Mm. Who would you who would you bring back as your your big space hero? I mean, it has to be, it has to be an, a Neil Armstrong. I only briefly ever spoke to, to him, and never never really got to know him like I did a lot of the other Apollo heroes. And, and what was always remarkable to me about him is that, you know, he, he was for a time one of the most famous people in the world, but sort of never made it about himself. It was always about NASA and humanity's achievement and just sort of that, that grace and courage because he had a lot of interesting experiences in his life where he was really put at risk. I mean, that is just an impressive human being i would have liked to have known um for sure did you did you see the 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 movie first man is it first man first man and a lot of people didn't like it but i loved it i thought it was great and i thought the the scenes the the last 20 minutes or so where they were sort of filming coming down to the moon and landing on the moon were just outstanding and actually the the opening scene um where he's flying the aircraft oh yeah x-15 
Thank you. Gee, yeah. I, that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, but it's but it, but I'm knackered. I'm if you use a British word, I'm knackered as well. Um, the, the the opening scene of where they, he's flying the X-15, you know, talking. I talked to Joe Walker, who's the last living pilot of that sort of, and he was a consultant on the movie. But I talked to him. I was like, well, what was it really like? He's like, well, that's that's the closest I've ever seen it to on the film. But it was it was more dynamic than that. So I, I thought the film was fantastic. The flight sequences, the Gemini sequence, I thought it was all tremendous. Um, but I, I know a lot of people didn't like it. I really liked it as a movie, and I thought it was a really good take on on doing something like Neil Armstrong. But then I saw the, the did you see the documentary about Neil Armstrong. I did not. No, you know, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm I have been a pilot out for a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just was so much overload around the anniversary that I just sort of said, "Well, I've had my fill." Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I, the, the Armstrong movie was the last of my Apollo things that I did. Like, like yeah, like, yeah I did get a, a, Apolloed out. But yeah, it it kind of it was very very hard to the juxtaposition of those two things. The the Armstrong sort of documentary felt like it was a very different person that was being portrayed. Was almost it more like hero worship or what? No, it wasn't. Not at all. It, it was this person had a little bit more of a uh, the the Armstrong in the documentary was a lot more humorous and and serious, mm. but hum, humorous. Whereas the one in the film, I thought was very. They, Very sober. They, they were carrying this sadness with them at all times. Yeah. It seemed that was the that was the that was the idea of the film that I got. But but I loved I loved I actually loved both both films. I thought they were really really good. No, it's a it's a great documentary. If you ever get to, once you I'll once have to, yeah once the, maybe a few years <laughs> when the Apollo uh, when the Apollo fatigue wears off. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last question that is: um, Have you got a song to add to our space playlist? Let me look it up. So uh, there is a song. There's a there's a playlist on Spotify called Synthwave Space or something. That I sometimes listen to when I write to it. Let me find out. It's called Synthwave from Space, and there's a song on there. There's no there's no the only words on it are like audio from the space shuttle missions, a couple of space shuttle missions, and so like it'll be sort of doing this weird spacey stuff. And I don't listen to a lot of electronic music. But like when I'm writing or something, sometimes I just like it sort of as a break and you know, so I can focus. And then like, so I was listening to it and then all of a sudden it's, it's Dynatron, I think. All of a sudden, like I hear Charlie Bolden, like giving out these calls, like, and sort of talking about that experience. And that was so, it was so cool. And I actually asked him, I said, I sent him the song. I said, Charlie, this is you, right? He's like, yeah. And anyway, that would be, that would be my space song because probably most of your people have never, have never heard it. Space operators, space operators. It is space operators. There we go. The chorus parts, like just you'll hear a couple audios, and it's just really cool. It's like it's like you're kind of listening to the song, and I I, I kind of like it, and then like all of a sudden, like there's this 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 shuttle grounded or space to ground audio, and uh, it's very cool. So give it a listen. It's called uh, space that, operators. That that that's right up my straza. Well done. Thank you very much. So I, I've got actually I've just thought of one. I one of your stories, and I that I saw recently is about the Europa Clipper not going on SLS because it gets rocked to bits. What's going to happen with that? What is happening with that? <laughs> or is it just too contentious to call? It's too contentious to call. The scientists would like to go on the uh, Falcon Heavy because they know that rocket would be available. Um, the minimum wait time if they go on SLS is probably two years. They're going to have to, so they'd build the spacecraft and then put it in storage for two years waiting for the SLS. Um, and then it's just, it would cost about a billion and a half more to fly 
on SLS, which Congress wants it to do because they'd like they'd like to be able to promote SLS as a rocket for more than just you know these human missions, um, which is would be fiction, but they're they're pushing it. And so the benefit of the SLS is that instead of like a five and a half year trip, I think it's like three years or something like that. It's two to three years faster to go on SLS because you have more thrust and so you can get there more directly. The thing about Falcon Heavy was initially they thought they'd have to do a Venus flyby to, to, to boost it to, your, to, to Jupiter, but now they figured out a way they can do Earth and Mars flybys and still get there. And, and that's, that's, the, that, that's important because if you go all the way into Venus, you have a much different thermal profile that you have to protect the spacecraft from. But if you don't have to go to Venus, then that's, that's mass and things you don't, that you don't have to worry about. So it's, it's kind of in limbo, that, but, but if you're going to design the Clipper for the Falcon Heavy, it's different versus the SLS so that the, the engineers and sort of the people at JPL really need to know, like they need to know what the answer is. But this recent issue, which I've been doing so many other things I haven't dug into too much, but apparently there are some concerns that, that due to the shaking or vibrations during launch, of the SLS rocket that would damage the Clipper as built and designed. So I, I really, I'm hoping to find out more information on that, but, but you know, that's not good if your rocket shakes so much that it's going to damage spacecraft. That doesn't really suggest to me that it has much future outside of potentially launching cargo and maybe crew for, for Artemis if it, you know, yeah. If other rocket companies fall off the face of the earth. <laughs> well, I just say, yeah, I'd, if I was an astronaut, I'd go, so <laughs> it vibrates. Well, it was funny. The Space News story I read basically said, well, the Orion is much heavier, so the shaking wouldn't be as much of an issue. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd, I'd, I, wouldn't be a, I wouldn't be that pleased. If it's not if it's not good enough for a satellite, surely it's or a, you know a deep space spacecraft. It's surely not good enough for a human. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get off and uh, thanks very much for that, Eric. Thanks very much for doing it at the last good. minute. As it was well. fun. Yeah, I always always love talking to you. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll get you on more often. The interplanetary podcast is alive. There was Eric. There's not not much to say about that other than what a total legend amazing amazing what a dude so next week kathy sullivan i'm going to be with julio again as we talk to kathy sullivan oh dreamy julio do you think there's ever going to be like an um a sort of poll online about about me and julio because you know i am i'm really putting myself out there and he's he's, he's an incredible guy and you know i i I, I want to do my best but i also would really i crave that adoration from the fans <laughs> <laughs> just to beat him, just to just to beat him and be I, be, be more popular, you know. I, I would have thought you'd be more like you know those actors that never read their reviews because they can't cope. Oh with no, it. no, I don't, I don't. I get my uh, I get my people to read them for me, and then and they only show you the good reviews. Yes, that's correct. Okay, well, that, that maybe maybe I can do that. <laughs> no, please so, don't. I'm really scared. If you've got now. something nice to say about <laughs> about Chris. <laughs> <laughs> send it through to me don't send it and don't send anything horrible it's yeah very, so got very delicate nice to say. it's very delicate nice to say about our needy guest host <laughs> <laughs> oh, but as ever if you've enjoyed today's podcast uh where can they go chris well do you know what if i was thinking that's been a really enjoyable podcast that and i switched on my computer machine and went to the interwebs i'd probably go to interplanetary.org.uk 
Oh, but beautiful! What what a what an easy one to remember. Or www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary, where you can join the Spodcats and be part of the journey. We love you, Spodcats. We love you, Spodcats. Uh, <laughs> absolutely Brill- brilliant! Loads of book club suggestions. Oh man, I've I got a book sent to me, which I can't wait to talk about. Is uh, is uh, uh, the story of Lisa Nowak, Starcrossed? I can't wait. To- to uh, have a little chat Ooh. about that, so that sounds little... like a good one. Yeah, oh, and it's... also, just a little nod back to last week. I've now it's um, in Audible. I've got Look Up ready for me to be able to enjoy. So, uh, I'm really very much looking forward to that one. Nice. I, I, I also going back to last week. It turns out no, Riding Rockets isn't on Audible. I know. I tried to find it, Matt. Yeah. No, you have to buy the book annoyingly mm. there we go i will i'll still buy it you know what let's do it yeah. you know uh, i'm gonna go on a bookshop <laughs> and do it an old-fashioned way but i'm gonna right. do it while listening to look up <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> listening to look up and reading mike Mullane's riding rockets at the same time that's that sounds plausible that's the sort of thing that Richard Feynman would would challenge himself to do. Completely, yeah, yeah, and also at the same time, sort of like writing stuff with his toes or something. Yeah, like translating some foreign language from some <laughs> from some ancient stone. Um, we 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 better go. This is a long okay. po- spod spodcast. Yes, yes, it's been a long one, but a good a, one. A good one. I love. I love. I've, that life in Venus. Oh my Amazing. god. Amazing! Right. It's that it's 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 there. We put the, we put this now out there to say that we were the people who discovered it. You know, our podcast is going out before the news stories. Oh, hang on, no, they're out, aren't they? Okay, but anyway, for posterior, anyway. we've got this podcast. Absolutely, Amon. <laughs> so, what are you up to this weekend? Um, I shall be recovering. I think it's it's the first week back of lectures, and it's been. Oh, it's been brutal. hard work. It's, it's been brutal. It has actually been quite brutal, despite it being yeah. all on Zoom again. I'm zoomed yeah. out. I'm zoomed out. Zoomed out. Yeah, I know the feeling. I'm zoomed Definitely. out. Yeah. I should be actually be listening to a new artist I've discovered called Gabriel Kahane. Oh my god! Okay, so good. I'll make a note. Mm, really good. I wish I awesome. wish they'd done a space song. Gabriel, I know you're listening. If can you write a space song, please, so I can stick you on the space space song playlist. Something a bit spacey for us, please, Gabriel. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Less of your travel log stuff. <laughs> we don't want to hear that. <laughs> Come on. Write write a travelogue <laughs> of a journey to Mars. There you go. There's an idea for your next your next album. What about a journey to Venus, Matt? Oh, gen- well, you know what? We should have really have said that on the um on the way to Mars, you can do um, you can do a trip to Venus. We were talking How's that about possible? this. Well, you use Venus as a slingshot round to Mars, and it gets you there quicker. Um, Fantastic. And also, it gives you an opportunity to have, if something goes wrong, you can come back as well. There's an abort if you go via Venus. But not only that, on the you know via Venus, you can also do loads of really interesting science at Venus and make like- it a double whammy mission. Killing two rocks with one rocket. Oh, nice. Killing two rocks with one rocket. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's the old adage, isn't it? <laughs> Chris, it's been a pleasure having you back on the podcast. I will see you in a couple of weeks. 
Wonderful to be back, and I can't wait for the next one. I'm looking forward to hearing Julio next week. Awesome. Bye bye, Spadcats. Bye, Spadcats. Bye, Spadcats. Bye, 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 bye. bye.